So this was my way of closure for World War One. For those of us who, for a, a large number of us at the Montana Historical Society, we've been working on World War One for five or six years. We finally got the exhibit up, and if anybody is here from the museum, you can herd cats. But I needed closure, and so I started looking for a means to that. And I stumbled on, I didn't stumble on, anybody who's read any history in Montana has read about the special session of 1919. And whether you're reading Reader and Malone and Lane or Kinsey Howard, they, they give this amazing piece of Montana history one paragraph. And it's always just about the relief and other things. And so I thought, well, isn't that sweet? That'd be a great closure. And I will tell you, this is my first and last talk on politics. <laughs> because it was horrifying. It was horrifying. There's so much going on. And as Rich said, this was a time of chaos in Montana. As Ray already said, there was a special session called in 1918 to prepare Montana for the war. 17 months later, there's a special session called by Sam Stewart to help people survive the post-war Montana. And I want to give kudos because not all of, Sam Stewart doesn't come across positively in much of my talk, but I want you to imagine what kind of chaos he brought Montana through on one, one level or the other. So that second special session is called because beginning in 1917 along the High Line, especially around the Haver area, a drought began. It moved south in 1918, and by 1919 the entire state was affected by drought. Landowners who had borrowed to enlarge production during the war, by the way they had been encouraged by banks and by social pressure, they had borrowed during the war to enlarge their farms, to buy equipment, to improve more ground, could no longer make their, their mortgage payments. Fall was in the air in 1919, but there was no wheat in Montana, even though national wheat prices were running high. So Sam Stewart called his special session. And when he addressed the special session, he was very emphatic that they were there, those legislators were there, to afford such relief as may be possible to the citizens of the state who are suffering, and there were a lot of people suffering. Now, many in the press expressed concern, and even mainstream papers, expressed concern about this because those reporters who had been attending caucuses reported that they had not seen or heard of any really concrete plans for how this aid was going to come across. And I love um, just, and I didn't know you were going to be here, Ken, so I'm not schmoozing. But um, the River Press is one of my go-to newspapers. And so I, I will be quoting from them a lot. But they reported as soon as a special session began their concern over the lack of a concrete plan of legislative action. So sadly, and this, much of this was beyond Sam Stewart and the legislators' power. They struggled and on some levels did manage to provide some relief for farmers and those in trouble. They also attempted to prepare or to stack the deck for the upcoming November 1920 elections. They reacted to national issues because of inflation, 
They made an attempt to make order out of the chaos still left from the county busting. And then they attempt to assign and organize an institution to address water rights regulation and allocation. Now, in my feeble mind, because I would rather be talking about livestock grounds up here, I try to make sense of this. And so I'm going to address one, two, three, four. I, I broke the legislation, legislation down into five topics. There's going to be politics, relief, water, roads, and the peripheral stuff. So, relief. When Sam, Sam, Sam Shepard, I do like him as an actor. When Sam Stewart addressed the legislature, he proposed in Senate Bill, I get to going, he proposed to use an existing, what I consider the pre-existing structure that had been so successful during the First World War. And of course, his buddies on the Council of Defense fit right into this. He recommended the creation of a relief drive and state relief commission with members of the Council of Defense being transferred into those positions in each county. Now again, that type of fundraising supported by what Stewart saw as a pre-existing structure. We've got the Red Cross, we've got the Knights of Columbus, we've got the Salvation Army. Believe it or not, there are even Armenian and Jewish organizations already existed. And they had created an environment of rabid, maniacal volunteerism and donations and funding to survive the war. This measure failed because I, my translation is the people were tired and all used up. And so another bill was passed. It winds up being Chapter 8 and is referred to the Belden measure. Belden was from Fergus County and he was Speaker of the House in 1919. And that bill puts relief in the county hands. It gave the counties power to hold special elections when their amount of indebtedness exceeded $10,000. They could ask for funding and sell bonds. And it outlined processes that farmers could use to ask for delays or extensions on their farm loans. It also authorized the county commissioners to undertake the work of relief to any extent they may conclude is necessary and to incur indebtedness within certain limitations, which were already set. Now here again, the mainstream editorials were looking at this and asking the question, why, why could counties not issue warrants beyond the present limits for emergency core funds and pass laws arranging for the state to purchase the warrants when funds were available? Joint House Resolution 5 and Joint House Resolution 7 gave, uh, put up a structure for the extension of agricultural payments in 1919 and authorized the State Highway Commission, it was an emergency measure, to hire or give preference to farmers in all cases when labor was required in road construction projects. So the relief programs were only minimally successful. People were depending on their neighbors, and their neighbors had next to nothing to give. However, the construction, the road construction, was successful to the point where if you were a farmer, you were darn glad to get hired by this. And if you were a farmer or rancher that had a horse, even better, because as mechanized as we'd like to think this country was in 1919, those horses were still providing the main power. So farmers and ranchers who were able to get hired onto these projects 
were darn glad and lucky to do so. However, there was a little bit of fly in the ointment because Stewart appointed Frank Conley to the State Highway Commission. Conley was also the state prison warden and on state prison board. So this created a little bit of conflict of interest. And convict, convict labor was cheaper than day labor. And I'll let you do what you want with that. Now, when, we, when I was reading the headlines of the newspapers, whether it was the Wonderful River Press, the Billings Gazette, or the Helen Independent, Washington, D.C. is, is um, coping, attempting to cope with profiteering at the same time that Montana is. Now, I want you to think about this. From 1913 to 1919, inflation in the United States was over 80%. Were they worried about profiteering? They were worried about everything. And as Ray said, we're dealing with people who are still mourning the loss of their sons and husbands in war. And now they have to worry about paying the bills and putting food on the table. So Senate Bill 15, 16, and 17 were called the profiteer killing bills. The Railroad Commission became the ex officio Montana Trade Commission. And that trade commission would remain active for decades, more famously regulating gas prices during the war. But they do evolve into the Office of Consumer Protection. And then we have the public roads and highways or transportation. There are several, seven measures for the road and highway improvement. Chapters 2, chapters 4, 5, and 20 came out of these. The first was giving some areas of the state, some government officials, power of eminent domain. The, the, um, one chapter amended the State Highway Commission responsibilities, and one of those responsibilities was to ask the federal government for road building funds, it amended pre-existing general high law, highway law providing for special improvements. It amended pre-existing general highway law declaring an emergency law, and there we are again, and encouraged contractors and counties to use day labor. labor. However, there are also guidelines for use of convict labor. And we will get back to the highways in just a moment. And then there's a drought going on. In Montana, there are a couple wonderful, wonderful articles, one of which is Bryant's, on Montana's struggle to create water rights. As late as 1942, the state engineer is at a meeting of national, of state water engineers, and he admits that in Montana, the guy that has the biggest boot and the biggest shotgun gets the water rights. 1942. So there has been a distinct lack in organization because of the mindset, for right or for wrong, that the first, the first come gets the water. Except we've had a homestead rush, and there are a whole lot of people more needing water. So we've got chapters 12, 13, 14, and 17. There are pre-existing laws for the creation, organization, construction, extension of irrigation districts. They're attempting to define the powers. In reality, they pretty much restrict the state engineer's powers. They do create an irrigation commission. Their powers are defined, and they are given the task of, sale, of selling permits as well as uh, prosecuting those people who do not get permits. And this goes, oh, and then my favorite, two different memorials coming out of the House and the Senate, requesting 
from the U.S. Congress $50 million to complete irrigation projects and reclamation projects throughout the U.S. West. And again, we're going to get back to that. But now, this is my favorite. And this is why I really will never talk about politics again. So this is 1919, and the 1920s, uh, 1920 election in November is looming. And Sam Stewart and his, the, his fellow Democrats are nobody's fools. And he broadens the scope of the special session to revise primary elections under the guise as emergency laws. And this is where our, our two programs do a little bit of uh, intermix here. Concern over the upcoming post-war elections that, and this is a quote, that one of the major party tickets might be captured in a concerted primary drive by a dissident faction, dissident factions, unions, nonpartisan league, or other socialist tendencies. As the Missoulian reported in criticism of the existing laws, quote, they seem to made, they seem made to order for the disruption of the political parties and the rule of Montana by a minority. It opened the doors for groups to wreck the democratic organization. And then my favorite quote coming out of the River Press, they explained the new measures proposed by the legislation would prevent misfits from taking office. Well, thank heaven we don't get misfits in our office. <laughs> Chapter 27 attempted to repeal the presidential preference primary by emergency action in an effort to eliminate the April preference primary. Voter petitions, I'm glad to say, suspended the law until it could be voted on in April 1920 primary held as scheduled. And the voters did eventually reject the change in November 1920. Chapter 28, close, they attempted to close primary nominating elections to any but declared party members and to limit the direct primary nominating process. This was quickly adopted to destroy open primary and preference life primaries by enacting emergency legislation again. And there had been a referendum in this in the 1912 election. In January, January 1920, the Supreme Court declared three to two that no emergency existed to justify the legislature. They also decided that there were enough signatures to send this to a referendum and it was voted down November 1920. Chapter 25 proposed constitutional amendment to create three, a member state board of administration, administration. Those were all appointed by the governor. And chapter 31, imagine dabbling with the Supreme Court to gain power. Act to increase number of justices of the Supreme Court of Montana from three to five. It passed and Sam Stewart appointed John Hurley from Glasgow and George Patton of Bozeman. Loose ends. So and this is kind of a cleanup. We have a lot of veterans coming back from war, and a lot of money is, is put into the Galen Hospital complex in the belief that it was going to be needed. The National Suffrage Amendment was ratified even though Montana women had had the vote prior to that. The state was burning up on the west side. Wherever there was a forest, there was a forest fire. And so the legislature passed the mandatory um, spark arresters. That was their way of addressing the fires. They did try to prevent the creation of new counties. This failed, and so they passed several pieces of legislation to regulate the new counties. And some of that was just the chaos in the creation of the counties and an attempt to get some san in, um, sanity, insanity. 
sanity into those new organizations. So this slide is there simply because I really like the picture. And this picture is a little later. It is from one of the WPA photographers. And that's a sheep wagon in the distance. And down below on the left in the gray, and Ms. Van Cleet, I remember what you said about gray this morning. But that's a little bit of water. But no other photo made me think of drought like this one did. So the special session lasted just 15 days. Just. Probably an eternity for the men and women there. They passed 58 measures. That included 28 bills and 30 memorials and resolutions. Oh, by the way, this is a sheep wagon at Stockwater Reservoir in Madison County. So, what came out of all this insanity? Now, if you can't read this, I'd be happy to show you. These are the results of the state offices in the November 1920 elections, and the Republicans had a clean sweep. We now have Joseph Dixon as our governor. Rich has talked about him, and I'm going to talk a little bit about him. This was the end of the Homestead era. Drought began in 1917, and with a few years, there was a mass exodus from Montana. Montana was the only state to lose population during the otherwise prosperous 1920s. Fergus County, for example, between 1920 and 1930, went from 28,000 population to 16,500. The bottom line is there was a drought, and farmers simply could not pay back the monies borrowed during the war. There was simply no operating money. According to Reeder, Malone, and Lane, 20,000 mortgages were foreclosed. Half of Montana farmers lost their land. Between 1920 and 26, half of Montana's banks failed. And that is a whole nother presentation. The 1919 special session failed to create wide-scale aid for Montana farmers. Nor did the Democrat majority at 1919 succeed in ensuring success in the 1920 election. However, with hindsight, and we do look back in hindsight, they did do some really interesting things to prepare Montana for the modern age. One of the first things they did was recognize the need for roads and for, move, and for improving automobile travel and taking those steps to make Montana the tourist attraction it is today. Not only, of course, did those construction jobs benefit locals, but nationally, as well as, as county, roads were becoming a vital issue. Nationally, the Good Road Movement, or the 1916 Federal Road Act, would encourage local roads as well as national routes. And there are several of these amazing national highways that ran through Montana. The first was, and my favorite, is the Yellowstone Trail. It was created from 1912 to 1930 from Massachusetts to Seattle. How many people have had ribs at the saloon in Willow Creek? Is that all? Bonnie, is it worth the drive? Yeah. When you park in front of the saloon, you are on one of the few streets that was that still exist from the Yellowstone Trail. There was the Custer Battlefield Highway that ran from Des Moines to Glacier Park and went through three national forests in Montana. And then the Teddy Roosevelt went over the Marais Pass in 1930. Now the politics can be measured, of course, by Stewart and that failure despite the Democrats' manipulation. 
and getting any upper hand going into that 1920 election. Water. Brian, cover your ears. Water, quite honestly, um, and Brian can disagree with this, but I don't think Montana got their water rights together until 1970s. And however, there was an attempt because legislature recognized that there was more water being allocated than Montana had to give. And several measures that I've already discussed were passed in hopes of bringing order to that. But it just took Montana a while to get out of that pioneer, first come, first drink of water mentality. Alright? More specifically, I will say under the guidance of Governor Frank Cooney, and public work programs were established specifically to conserve and store water in hopes of restoring prosperity to rural Montana. In the 1930s, the legislature approved the creation of the Montana um, State Water Conservation Board. The board was given the power to accept federal grants, loans, etc. Now all of that is under the auspices of the DNRC. So, that is my closure for World War I. <laughs> However, and honest to gosh, Rich and I did not choreograph this. I have to take you into the next era. According to many Montana history books, Dixon was the last progressive. And I, I like to point out at this point, Sam Stewart was a progressive. He was Democrat. Dixon's Republican. He's a progressive. This wasn't along party lines. And he was supported by the company, his first try. Um, won the governorship, and I am just going to read a quick quote from him. The matter of fair and just taxation must be settled so that the great mining interests, the water power interests, and all other forms of property shall bear the equitable proportion of the burdens of the government and no more and no less. And thus begins another era in Montana history. <laughs>